Welcome to Money in the Air, the music podcast about neighboring rights, the royalties you earn from the public performance of your recordings and the business of music in general. Brought to you by IFR, the International Association for Artists and Rights Holders. I'm Andrew, a royalty consultant helping artists to collect on their value. Hi, I'm Gina Deacon. I work for Absolute Rights Management and I work with record labels and artists to ensure we claim the royalty income due to them. I'm Stacey Haber and I'm from Inside Baseball Music Publishing. Hey, welcome back, guys. This is the IFR Neighboring Rights Podcast, Money in the Air. Today's episode is all about the SAG AFTRA AFM Intellectual Property Fund. And our special guests are Sherry Hoffman and Dennis Street from Transparency Entertainment Group. And the actual name of the fund is the AFM and SAG AFTRA Intellectual Property Rights Distribution Fund. Very long title. Worldwide, everybody just calls it the fund. I'm the former COO and now the CEO of Transparency Entertainment Group. Dennis and I formed that organization in 2017, late 2017, early 18, so that we can do a, even a better job of helping all types of music creators get their money without the middlemen. I'm Dennis Dries. I actually was the CEO of the AFM and SAG After Intellectual Property Rights Distribution Fund. Since the inception, I actually started that fund at the end of 1999 and was their executive director, CEO, up until 2017, about July of 2017, I believe. So we started that fund, started it literally with $187,000 and no mechanisms to distribute money to anybody. You know, a bank account, and that was it. At the time, I will say we started with a, a staff of one person. We had a woman, Joanne McGettry, who was a friend of mine, who I brought from uh, Sony Records to help me sort of administer the fund. And we started with uh, Joanne and myself um, sort of in a borrowed corner of the Film Musician Secondary Markets Fund, um, a, a hand-me-down computer and a fax machine they were getting ready to toss out. And uh, so we started there when I left the fund and Sherry was, as she said, uh, CEO of the fund. When we left, the fund had, I think, 72 employees, owned its own building and uh, $100 million in assets. So it really is a tremendous success story. You know, when we started, it was the kind of thing where a lot of people had said something that, you know, I thought it was a little bit of a folly. And people kind of joked about the fund in the early days because it was literally such small distributions. But we saw that that was actually the future of how positions and vocalists were going to make money in the industry. And now I can say the longer that's not the future of how people do it, that's the present of how people do it. Who does the fund distribute money to? This is a very unique operation because it distributes to non-featured background vocalists and non-featured session musicians. So it's a fund established just for the background performers. I think it's the only other organization that's slightly similar to that, Spedidom in France, that has primarily non-featured performers, but does also represent featured performers. So the the fund is, is quite unique in that regard, and it really is sort of the other half of what sound exchange is. However, they do distribute to union and non-union musicians, performers, excuse me, alike, regardless of the name. And they also distribute to both featured artists and non-featured artists on audiovisual payments that come through in foreign territories. Ah, that's really important. That's key that it's audiovisual as well. How do they determine who gets paid? It is a fairly complicated process. Uh, what happens is I think we have to go back a little bit and say how where the money comes from first to understand how people get paid. 
money flows through sound exchange, as you know, you may or may not know. In the U.S., we really don't have neighboring rights, but what we do have is equitable remuneration in three, in really three areas. We have private copy, which collected by ARC, the uh, Alliance of Artists and Record Companies, and that's a very, very tiny amount of money in the U.S., but substantial in foreign territories. So that allows the fund co- to collect money for private copy in foreign territories because it does create a form of reciprocity. Bulk of the money, though, comes through sound exchange, and that comes from subscription services, things like SiriusXM, which is the bulk of the money, and webcasting. And so what happens, the webcasters, the subscription services pay their money to sound exchange. Sound exchange then takes and divides that in half, gives 50% of that money to the rights holders, which are traditionally the record companies. But as we know now, we have DYI artists who are now producing their own product and distributed and smaller independent labels. So that's a growing pool of rights holders. There's no longer just the major record companies, but that's still a a large chunk of that. So 50% goes to the rights holder, 45% goes to the featured artists or artists, and that gets divided up, you know, a number of ways among the featured artists. If it's a band member, they get divided up among them. If there's a feature in performance, that gets added to the featured artist. And 5% of that money goes to the AFM SAG after that money then is distributed to all of the performers. And that money in, in itself is split in half. Two and a half percent goes to musicians and two and a half percent to vocalists. So Sound Exchange then provides the fund with a list of all the different recordings that have had um, activity subject to, to, uh, to, to equitable remuneration. And that turns out to be any given year probably 60,000 to maybe tops 80,000 discrete sound recordings. Uh, generally, the fund gets a, a whole bunch of data. It's about 6 million lines of data because it has you know, multiple recordings, how many times a record is performed. So they basically consolidate that, and then they do a proxy sort of release. They look down the list of recordings, and they figure out how much they can actually research at any given time. So they didn't want research down to about 20,000. I think since the time Sherry and I left, they may have increased that to maybe uh, 25 or even 30,000 sound recordings that they uh, research and make distributions on. So then they have to identify everybody on those recordings. Now of that, say, 25 to 30,000 recordings, not every one of those have featured non-featured performers. So then that money gets folded up on a pro rata share among all the other sound recordings. And they probably make a distribution. If there's 30,000 recordings in the pool, then I think probably a little bit more than half. I figure about 60% of the recordings uh, really have non-featured performers and distribution on those. Uh, then the fund has to research and find out everybody who's on that. So they use all the kinds of sources. They go to websites. They use a lot of uh, research from Discogs and Wikipedia and all different you know, fan websites. And in the case of union performers, they actually also access union contracts to help them figure out who's on these recordings. And they create a database of that. And then they make uh, payments. And the payments are made... As I said, uh, each recording has basically its pro rata share of the marketplace, but then each performer gets an equal share of that in their two pools. So we have the vocalist pool and the musician pool. So, for example, if there's one vocalist on a recording, that one vocalist would get the entire 2.5%. And if there were 10 musicians on that same recording, those 10 musicians would share the 2.5%. So clearly uh, creates a real advantage for vocalists. That's basically how they get paid. And of course, this is a tremendous uh, task 
because they also have to find all the non-union performers. So as Sherry mentioned early, earlier, uh, it has to be paid union and non-union have to be treated alike. And then uh, that creates all kinds of uh, omissions and um, missing money and unclaimed monies. And then they also have quite a backlog because they don't really distribute the money in the same year they collect it. And that can take uh, many, many years sometimes. I think the last distribution of the fund was still working off of, so it goes back to 2015, they're still making distributions. Earlier than that. Earlier than that. Especially the foreign money uh, takes a while. Some, some I don't know why, but it takes a while for them to collect that and just not collect it, but distribute it. They, I don't, I don't know how they do it in today's date, but before it was kind of in the pool and they distribute all together. The, the other thing I wanted to note is that unlike any collective in the world, you don't register for the fun. They come and do the research and find you, which makes things a little more complicated as well. Um, what I would recommend to any um, non-featured music creator is to always check their uh, covered sound recordings list because they are missing. They have a big black box of money that they need to distribute and they have trouble finding people that have aliases um, in this day and age. Like Dennis said earlier, and back in 1999, 2004, uh, when that first distribution was made, um, it was mostly union recordings. It's completely reversed now, and most of the recordings are not are done non-union. Just for food for thought. There's a website that people can go to and put in their name and look and see if there's any money being held for them. We'll put that in the notes when we post this podcast, unless you know it and can say it out loud. AFMSAGAfterafund.org. And they can go there and they can look for the uh, covered sound recording list currently receiving money from the fund. All they can basically do is look at the unclaimed list and there's a separate uh, tab for the unclaimed list and the covered sound recordings list. So the first place to go is the unclaimed list and see, yes, if you're money, if you have money there. And that becomes somewhat complicated because many people have similar names. It doesn't tell you which one you are. So you have to basically put a, an omissions claim in and then there's a lot of questions about which recordings that you performed on. If you've already been collecting money from the fund, you can then also look at the covered sound recordings list and see uh, the credits on that. You can't see the credits on it unless you've already been receiving money from the fund and are registered for their primary yes. access. Registered and logged in. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cumbersome process, but you know, I wish it were easier. It, uh, it's somewhat complicated, but there's a substantial amount of money. I mean, we found um, in one fell swoop, we found $100,000 for can be substantial. Finding $30,000, $40,000 for somebody is not unheard of. These are substantial payments. The collections just from sound exchange are roughly $60 million a year, not counting the foreign monies that come in. There's a lot of money out there, and there are oftentimes, as Sherry mentioned, they just haven't found everybody on those particular recordings. There's always questions about producers, and especially in, the, in this day and age, we have um, more and more producers who are working, especially in the urban space, are really kind of do everything. They, they're oftentimes uh, one of the songwriters. Uh, they create the tracks. They, they make the beats. They do all these things and oftentimes list themselves strictly as producer. Now, if they get an LOD or letter of direction from the artist, they can actually collect some money from sound exchange, but just as the producer. But oftentimes, if they've performed anything, if they've made an audible contribution to a recording, which is pretty much the case um, for all of these people. And what is the triggering factor to get uh, some kind of neighboring rights royalties? We'll just call for arguments that we'll call these neighboring rights. They're not, they're 
akin to neighboring rights. They're not exactly neighboring rights, but you have to make an audible contribution. So most people list themselves as a producer and think that sounds great. Being the producer sounds nice and sexy and you're like really important. You were a producer and you list nothing else. Now, that's great, except that being the sexy producer um, does the very unsexy thing of not getting you royalties. So if you want to be paid, <laughs> which is much sexier than not being paid in, in my mind, so uh, you need to list all the performances you do. So oftentimes if somebody has played keyboards, they've sung background vocals, um, they've uh, programmed um, the uh, sequencer to make the beats and, and do the drum programming. All those are audible contributions to the recording. A hand clap, a shout. Speaking yeah. on a recording where a lot of hip hop people will be speaking before, you know, in any like mixed track, like on any uh, Rihanna album or Cardi B, you'll hear the, one of the producers usually talking in the beginning to get their credit on the vocal side. And beatbox, like Dennis said, hand clapping, that would be a musical contribution as well as instruments. And most producers these days play all the, all the instruments. I mean, there's a lot of them. It's not, um, and it's not, a, not programming. This is actual musical contribution. So uh, actually programmers are not covered by the AFM and SAG after fund, either are engineers. Except to the extent that if, if you programmed what turned into a musical performance. So if you program a sound, that's not really, uh, you know, making an audible contribution. However, if you uh, program a sequencer that, that results in a performance, in that case, you do get uh, credit as a non-featured performer. So it's important that these producers actually become non-featured performers because they can actually, in some cases, they may share the entire, they may have the entire two and a half percent. In some cases, they may have the entire two and a half percent as a vocalist, as a background vocalist, two and a half percent as, as a musician. Meaning that they get five percent, which they're going to really do better than they would from their LOD uh, with as a producer with sound exchange if they're able to get that. You know, so that's not a guaranteed. But if you perform on a recording that's on the covered sound recording list, and you can prove your performance, you're guaranteed a, a royalty with that. So that's a, a big a big difference in the case of you can be a producer with an LOD and still be a non-featured performer, but you can't be a featured artist. For example, you can't be Stevie Wonder on a Stevie Wonder record and you and singing background vocals or playing all the instruments, you can't get paid then as the musician from the fund. You can only get paid as the featured artist in sound exchange. But if you were the producer and you um, got an LOD with Stevie Wonder and you also performed some things on it, in that case, you would get credited for that. I think there's a couple of other points that are important that I don't want to miss. And one is that uh, the way the fund is structured is uh, they collect for union and non-union performers in the U.S. The foreign monies, they only collect on behalf of union members. So um, because of what's called a mandate, we should talk about mandates for a second because it's a, a rather confusing issue. And for, maybe for the audience, um, so we can define a term a little bit better, a mandate is something you should look at as a limited power of attorney. It basically uh, is your right to collect money uh, from a collective management organization or your right to, um, to cede that to somebody else to do it on your behalf. So uh, if you have a mandate, uh, everywhere else in the world that belongs to the performer and you give that to an agent to collect from various societies on your behalf, or you give that to a society or multiple societies to collect on your behalf. In the United States, um, the unions view the mandate as their property. So they don't view it as the performance. 
performers. So the unions claim, and I, you know, just this is what they do. I don't necessarily believe this. I think it's wrong. I think it's not the case. I think that international law is quite a bit different than this because we're operating in foreign territories. So we should be adhered to that. Uh, in the United States, it's one thing to say that the union owns the mandate. But, uh, but they claim it in, in many other territories. So it creates what's called mandate conflicts oftentimes. So somebody who is a union member, but they want to have another society collect for them in a foreign territory, oftentimes the AF or SAG-AFTRA claims that they hold that person's mandate and, um, and they don't release it to those societies. So, that's and that's bad, bad because <laughs> what that means is that uh, if more than one entity claims a mandate for a performer, um, that basically puts that money in suspense. It puts a hold on those royalties. So it's not a matter of they can get paid in some territory or another. They, that money just gets on hold until it's resolved. So oftentimes, um, that having multiple kind of claims on a single mandate causes a great deal of problems. Many societies have stopped honoring uh, the union's mandates. So uh, it's gotten a little bit easier uh, as a workaround but I still think probably not the best situation. Yeah, it's because the rest of the world believes in the uh, performer's right to choose who they want to represent them um, rather than the way uh, the fund perceives it. This is not an issue with sound exchange nor ARC as far as I know they will release. Um, I also um, have had some successes with SAG after aside, if you're a vocalist, you just have to write to SAG after and request that release. And it's usually granted without question. Sometimes we have mandates that are claimed by people who aren't union members. If somebody has worked on a, on a union session just one time, union will claim them. We've had situations where the unions are claiming mandates for people they've even expelled. So they've tossed somebody out of the union, but they won't release their mandate. So it's a very complicated landscape. And so if people have issues with mandates, um, they can certainly uh, contact us and we can advise them uh, and we can advise them uh, what to do regardless of their uh, being a client of ours or not. We're happy to help people just um, get their money. That's great. Thank you very much on behalf of everybody listening. Can you also please explain what being Taft Hartlead means? Sure. Sherry, do you want to take that one or do you want me to? Sure. Um, Taft Hartley is when you record for a particular company you are required to register and join the union within, uh, I think, 30 days. But you're supposed to join the union, and that's like on an employer-by-employer employer basis. So you can work for another employer, and then you're supposed to join the union. Or they may refuse you to be able to be on that session. That's what I believe the consequence is. So the Taft-Hartley is basically putting a non-union person on that contract. So then that first 30-day period, you don't have to join the union. So you can be placed on a contract, and you can work and so most of the states, you know, have some wrinkles in it, but the federal law really is that you can't work for the same employer more than once in a 30-day period without joining the union, except in right-to-work states. Of course, you know, we have all these issues. So if you're in Tennessee or a number of right-to-work states, then that doesn't apply to you. So, um, but uh, so the Taft-Hartley rule was really being, when you say somebody was Taft-Hartley, it was really a non-union performer placed on a union contract that one time in that 30-day window for that one employer. And if you're Taft-Hartley'd in on, say, you go on the James Corden Late Late Show, does that mean that you're now a member, you have to join SAG-AFTRA, and you're now a member of this union and collecting under the fund, if you're the musical guest? Yeah. 
uh, only if you want to be on that show again within 30 days. So that's unlikely. So for the late night shows, they don't have, I'm not aware of a, you know, they try to keep the rotation, you know, fresh. So they don't, you wouldn't, it would be unlikely you'd be in the same band. You might, however, be uh, as a session performer or a background singer, you might have worked, you might have appeared on the late night show with Phil Collins. And then you might come back with, uh, you know, um, you know, um, I don't know, somebody else, you know, on another, just by coincidence, you may appear two weeks later working with a different band and technically you would have to then join or you would not be allowed to perform on that same network. Unless so, by chance it was done in Nashville, which is a right to work state. In Nashville, <laughs> yeah. or, or if there's a few other right to work states, but, yeah. but Nashville is the only other one that would be where there's a lot of musical activity. Yeah, but you're not automatically made a member of the union. You would have to join. So you don't have to join, but you would have to join if you wanted to work for that same employer within 30 days. And gotcha. Thank you. And it's kind of crazy because Texas sometimes is also performers. Dennis, Texas is right to work, correct? Uh, I believe Texas is a right to work. Then, then Austin City Limits would be one of those shows that you don't have to join the union. Yeah, I believe you're, I think that you're, you are correct in that. Well, thank you very much, guys. That's actually fascinating and a lot of information. So remember to listen several times, everyone out there, so you take it all in. And become a member of IFR. Go to IFR, I-A-F-A-R dot co dot U-K and join us. And then you'll have this on demand. Thanks for listening. See you next week.